Okay, hold on, folks. Uh, let me double check. Uh, for some reason, the music's not playing, but it's picking up my voice, so I'll just go ahead and skip the, the music, the uh, intro for Restoration Hour. I'll have to check into why that is uh, a little later. But in any case, this is Restoration Hour. And the topic of today is the story of Barbara Villiers, part four. And it'll probably be the concluding segment on this topic. But I just wanted people to know, because it's a 116-page book, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I just wanted people to understand that the East India Company was a Jewish-run organization. It created the Bank of England while Charles II was the King of England. And essentially, he was bribed, cajoled, blackmailed into uh, creating the Bank of England on behalf of the, the Jew... Uh, the Jew banksters, okay, and I'm putting the link into the chat room right now, I'm trying to anyway, there we go, Barbara Villiers, and sorry about the lack of music, Uh, something went wrong, actually I just came in from Springfield, but that shouldn't be happening, Uh, I better double check that and make sure my settings are correct for tomorrow. And tomorrow we're going to have uh, a new co-host for Voice of uh, Christian Israel. Ted from Texas is going to be joining me, and we're going to be talking about (laughs) Negroes, yeah, Lincoln's Negro policy and the Taney Dred Scott decision. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. So this is going to be juicy, juicy, juicy stuff, okay? Jews and juicy, <laughs> juicy and juicy, if I could co- coin a word, juicy and juicy. So tomorrow, Voice of Christian Israel, noon central time, right here on Eurofolk Radio. And oops, I got to, uh, I got to increase the size of this. What happened to it? All right, chapter eight. This is Barbara Villiers. Uh, from the Internet Archive. It's a free copy at the Internet Archive. It's a wonderful site, even though it is owned by a Jew. So, we talked about money, gold and silver, and exchange rates, and how banksters make money by simply exchanging coins between one nation and another based on the radically different exchange rates, like in India and, and London. And they don't have to work to make money. <laughs> this is uh, Put it this way. The Jews have mastered practically every technique of profiting from things that require no work. Although, although you do have to hire. In those days, you had to hire a ship to take gold and silver from one country to another to exchange it to make a profit. And then bring it back to exchange it and make another profit. So at least there was the expense of shipping, paying the sailors back and forth. With the risk, of course, of you know a storm or a pirate stealing everything, but nevertheless, today it's all done with AI, and there's no risk at all, except hacking. All right, there's always hackers, and if you think central bank digital currency cannot be hacked, think again. All right, chapter eight. This is page forty-one. 
It is now in order to review the operations of the East India Company with reference to the coinage and to weigh the evidences concerning the means which they employed to procure the passage of the Act of 1666-67. Now, of course, the East India Company was heavily involved in South Africa. The shows I did with Pastor Martins, uh, numerous shows on how the Jew-run East India Company oppressed the Boer people of South Africa, oppressed the Chinamen of China, oppressed the Indians of India, etc., 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 okay? That's why you never hear anything about the East India Company, because it was owned and operated by Jews. Had it been operated by white people or Chinamen or anything like that, yeah, you'd be hearing constant references to it as the embodiment of evil. But when the Jews run such an evil corporation, such as the East India Company, with its drug-running opium, the opium wars, caused by the East India Company and the Jews who run it? No, if the Jews are implicated, this conspiracy of silence takes effect. Okay? As before stated, the company acquired Bombay in 1668. And I think that was an island, he said in the previous chapter. Might as well say that they had their own country, Bombay. Okay? And it's been the name has been changed to Mumbai, I guess, to dis, so that the uh, Indians can distance themselves from the Jews, okay? Which I'm sure they want to do, okay? They want to forget about how the Jews ran that place and suckered India and suckered China and suckered England and suckered them and these and everybody else, okay? This is what the Jews do. And, you know, I, I, I think... It, Eurofolk Radio is the only place where you get, get this kind of information. Nobody on the internet, with the possible exception of Speak Free Radio, has this kind of coverage uh, on Jewish atrocities throughout history. We're the only ones who make this a regular affair. Okay? So, let's continue. And uh, I have, for some reason, something strange is happening on my computer. I think I am being attacked. Uh, the last three shows I did with Barbara Novak on a Thursday night show uh, on Fake News Now and her life story and uh, the, the being the Poland being with, together with the Jews for a thousand years. We've had some really bizarre stuff happening. Uh, like three weeks ago, we started the show and all of a sudden these Black figures came cascading from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen like demons on parade. And we had to ignore that and start the interview anyway. And then the next week, Barbara told me, I didn't see this, she said she saw it happening to me, that my background went completely dark, leaving only my white shining face in the middle. <laughs> I did not see it, but she saw it. And then yesterday, some clown, somebody or other, was interfering with our broadcast uh, doing pop-up type balloons, but in this case, like a thumbs-up type balloons, cartoonish balloons, but in this case, they were actually favorable. So when I would say something particularly uh, piercing about the Jews, a thumbs-up balloon would pop up, 
have no idea where it came from. And then Barbara made a, a cogent comment about the Jews, and then fireworks went off in the background, <laughs> cartoonish fireworks, and etc. So we have no idea who in the who in the world is doing this. But as long as it uh, is good, as, as long as we're giving up a giving us a thumbs up, I don't mind. Okay. So whoever's doing it, uh, more power to you. Just as long as it's good for us. Okay. So, but it, it's really discouraging to see that somebody can just influence our live broadcast in such a manner by you know, just inserting these types of cartoon uh, insertions. It's really strange. But be that as it may, life is good. Let's continue. So, as before stated, the company acquired Bombay in 1668. Two years afterwards, 1670, the Cabal Ministry was formed and, of course, the East India Company became even more secretive, is what I'm sure he's trying to say. But was this the official name, the Cabal Ministry? And one year later, 1671, the company erected a mint in Bombay. This was the same year, January 1671-72, to in which Charles II, after having solemnly assured the merchants of London, that not the Jews, Jewish merchants, the, the English merchants of London, that their deposits in the royal exchequer were perfectly safe and inviolable, coolly robbed them of the whole amount about one million three hundred twenty-eight thousand five hundred twenty-six pounds, and closed the exchequer to further demands. Ah, okay, yeah, more Jewish trickery here, folks. Perhaps he had by this time discovered how the crown had been cheated by the act of 1666-67 to and deemed himself justified in making reprisals from the class that had deceived him. Well, was he tricking the Rothschilds? Well, the Rothschilds weren't on the scene yet. Was he tricking the, these Jews or was he actually tricking other investors? Not sure. Continuing, but unfortunately, financial reprisals more often injure the innocent than the guilty. There you go. There's my answer. In getting even with the goldsmiths, Charles ruined 10,000 private families, innocent of crime against either him or the state. By its fourth charter, dated October 5, 1677, the East India Company was authorized by the crown to coin in India and with its own stamp, both gold, silver, copper, and lead. During the 15 years which followed this grant, the company must have transported from Europe to the Orient and there exchanged for gold or for East India goods at Oriental gold prices, something like 7,500,000 pounds in silver. Sounds just like what happened with America and the Federal Reserve Bank. Exactly the same thing, folks. The Jews have done the same thing to us. If to this is added 40,000 pounds a year from 1601 to 1666 and 400,000 pounds a year from 1666 to 1677, the grand total of silver exported... Oh, wait, here's a footnote. The Cabal Ministry consisted of Sir Thomas, afterwards Lord Clifford, Lord Ashley, afterwards Earl of Shaftesbury, George Villiers, 
Duke of Buckingham, Henry Bennett, afterwards Earl of Arlington, and John Maitland, who was also Lord Thurlstein and Earl of Lauderdale. Most of these men were concealed papists. <laughs> Bennett's daughter was married to the Duke of Grafton, one of Barbervilliers' sons. Talk about corruption, folks. And then all of these guys were knighted and given uh, you know, the, the right of uh, royalty, of course, lower class royalty, from this point forward, folks. Man, you have to be a crook to be knighted. Okay, computer, cooperate. I'm trying to turn the page. And I need to enlarge it. The, uh, it's uh, black on uh, tan. A very light black on tan reading. It's difficult reading. Okay, so by exchanging all of this silver uh, to uh, by the in, to the Orient down to the beginning of 1693, could scarcely have fallen short of 15 million pounds. So these Dutch Jewish bankers who created the East India Company made profits of 15 million pounds in those years when a pound was really a lot of money. A lot more money than it is today, folks. A lot more money than it is today. Oh, come on. My, I have to reconnect to the chat room. All right, so there you go. That, that's, the, that's the link. And let's continue. I am aware that according to the accounts presented by the company to Parliament, the exports of coin and bullion into India were much less. But of course, the Jew is going to you know, claim less profit than he actually got. How are they going to check, up, check it out? How are they going to do that? But in the first place, these statistics only cover India, not the Orient generally. And in the second place, they are refuted by the opinions of Pollocksfen and all contemporary writers, except those in the interest of the company, who unanimously declared that such exports after 1666 amounted on the average to more than half a million pounds sterling per year. When the East India Company gained a footing in the Orient, a monetary change was in progress which had commenced in the 14th century and was not yet completed. The Muslim conquests in the Orient had transported the to the Mediterranean and the accumulations of the precious metals in India and left that country under the necessity of employing currencies which consisted chiefly of copper coins and cowrie shells. In employing such measures of value, no stable ratio of exchange could be established with Basura or Baghdad, a fact which greatly hampered the Arabian trade. To remedy this difficulty, and for other good reasons, Mohammed bin Tughlaq, Emperor of Delhi, oh wow, this is uh, during the Muslim reign of India, A.D. 1324 to 51, introduced in place of the copper coins a system of silver and silver-plated ones, which he hoped would displace the former. This was the first step towards a silver, or rather a 
Billon, Billon, Billon being like a, a combination of silver and lesser value coins. And although not altogether successful, it led to better systems as time went on. In 1542, Sher Shah, S-H-E-R-S-H-A-H, succeeded in establishing in the circulation of the four dirham pieces, previously called tankas, and now first called rupees. In fi- so the Muslims actually set up the Indian rupee. Very interesting. In 1555-1604, Akbar the Great interdicted private coinage and made a notable but abortive attempt to establish all payments on the basis of silver coins struck by the state. In the reigns of his successors, Yahangir, Shah Yehan, and Aranzeb, or Oranzeb, this, for, this reform made but little progress, so that when during the reign of this last-named emperor of Delhi, the East India Company began to strike coins at Bombay, the circulation generally throughout the open parts of India still largely consisted of copper and billon coins, the superior silver coins and the gold coins remaining in and about the capital cities and trading ports. To supply the deficiency of silver coins by offering new and evenly minted, evenly minted ones for gold coins at a price of 9 or 10 to 1, which seemed generous to the Indian shroffs, was an enterprise that profitably occupied the company for nearly three-fourths of a century. Then, in 1749, having sold all its silver for gold, this virtuous company plundered from the Indians all the silver it had sold them and once more reduced their off-plundered land to a currency of coppers and cowries. The present silver coinage dates substantially from 1766. A fifth charter was granted to the East India Company August 9, 1683, and a sixth one on April 12, 1686, which last one expired with the reign of William and Mary in 1693. It was in the effort made by the company to obtain a new charter from the government of William III that the following occurrences took place. They are related in a pamphlet of 63 pages entitled, quote, A Collection of the Debates and Proceedings in Parliament in the Years 1694 and 1695 in Relation to Corrupt Practices. Oh, speaking of corrupt practices, I just found out today, shortly before our show, that uh, Justin Trudeau has a skeleton in his closet. It turns out, I think it was uh, 1999 to 2000, he had an affair with an underage girl while he was a teacher at West Point uh, School somewhere in the west of Canada. We're not talking West Point, United States. West Point in Canada. And he paid a $2.25 million hush money bribe to the girl in question. Man, isn't it incredible how mass media can cover these things up when their darling liberals are in charge? Well, it just came out. I think uh, Justin Trudeau's career as prime minister is over. It, it having transpired in the year 1694 that Sir John Trevor, the Speaker of the House of Commons, had accepted a bribe. Speaking of bribes, 
had expect, accepted a bribe. He probably accepted it. He expected it and then accepted it. A bribe of a thousand guineas from the merchants belonging to the Corporation of London to facilitate the enactment of the Orphans Bill. And there being rumor, rumors of bribery committed by the East India Company, the House, in order to purge itself of the reproach thus cast upon it, consigned Sir John to imprisonment in the Tower and passed a resolution promising pardon and indemnity to anyone who should give evidence in relation to the bribery of members. Fat chance. We're talking about mafia bankers here, folks. Anyone who would dare to come and give evidence against them is likely to be floating in the Thames. Just like when the Chicago mob, you found bodies floating down the Chicago River. The first result of this action was that Mr. Hungerford was convicted of having accepted a bribe of 20 guineas to pass the orphan's bill, whereupon he and Sir John Trevor were both expelled from the house. The next result was the commitment to the tower of Sir Thomas Cook, governor of the East India Company in 1693, charged with having distributed bribes amounting, as subsequently proved, to some 200 million, oh sorry, 200,000 pounds, to members of parliament and other officers of the government. After much prevarication and delay, Cook agreed to turn state's evidence if a special bill of pardon and indemnity was acted on in his behalf. Now again, the Jews will always hire white faces, Shabazz Goys, to take the fall to have, give the company a Anglo face when it is known by everybody who has ever known the Jews that this is how the Jews operate. They take an Anglo face prop it up and claim, and then they can say, oh, see those evil white men, <laughs> those evil white bankers, how they cheat us, how corrupt they are. Uh, as for me, I am quite fed up with this trick that the Jews use of pretending to be us or hiring people who look like us who are actually their employees. Okay, so the Jews have perfected the art of making money without having to work for it. That is their specialty. Okay, so their hirelings, their Shabbos Goy hirelings, went to the slammer, or the, and they eventually got uh, a pardon. It's always this is. Oh, by the way, I don't for a minute believe that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide or even died. He's, uh, he's on the beachfront, probably somewhere near Gaza, pretending to be a Palestinian and in his shorts and raping Gaza, Gaza girls. Okay, I'm sure that's where he's at. This being done in accordance with his wishes, he still paltered with the house by confessing that he had spent 167,000 pounds for services rendered to the company, just like the guy who tried to assassinate Andrew Jackson. Fortunately, both pistols misfired, and Jackson survived the experience. Chiefly towards its getting a new charter, 
but except in one instance, he could not say to whom the money was paid. <laughs> oh, reminds me of Dov Zockheim. Two trillion dollars went missing during the 9-11 caper. The exception was with reference to 10,000 pounds, which was given in 1693 to Mr. Francis Tyson. Oh, any relation to the Tyson chicken family? <laughs> Who told him he had given it to Sir Josiah Child, another operative of the bank in question? Who delivered it to King Charles, or sorry, to the king, who in this case was William III. As a customary present, or i.e. bribe, and that in King Charles and other former reigns, the like had been done for several years, which by the books of the company may appear, unquote. This bribe, as is correctly described here by Alexander Delmar, was presented to the king in tallies. Okay, so I guess they still had tally sticks in those days. So where did they get all these tallies? And how did the king accumulate the, the matching tallies, the tally sticks? Obviously, they were paid to the government by the people who owned them from past from past, uh, how do you call it? Because the tally sticks were broken and only a matching ta- two matching tally sticks when they fitted together properly would uh, count as money. Upon being further pressed, Sir Thomas Cook furnished accounts of about 200,000 pounds paid to what we would now call the lobby. Oh, the Jewish lobby. That is, to the relatives, friends, agents, or servants of parliament men, (laughs) like a U.S. Congress. For example, a sum of £10,000 paid to Mr. Richard Acton was for, quote, parliament men, unquote. And Sir Joseph Child had advised it. Among the high and it's all hush money, folks. It's all hush money and or bribery. Among the high officials and parliament men implicated was Thomas Osborne, Marquis of Carmarthen, now Lord Leeds, unquote. Enormous sums were paid to Sir B. Firebrace for parliament men. Yeah, it's just so, and your account summary on your books, money paid to parliament. For what service? Services rendered to Congress. What kind of services? Oh, no, no, it's just money. It's, it's donations. Donations. You believe me, don't you? Just donations. Among the high officials was Thomas Osborne. Enormous sums were paid to Sir B. Firebrace. When Firebrace was questioned, he implicated several noblemen and high officials, including the Duke of Leeds, Lord President of the Privy Council, Sir Josiah Child, and Sir Thomas Cook. The latter had also lodged a note in Tyson's hands for 50,000 pounds to be paid when the act which the company demanded was passed. See, when you're paid 50,000 pounds in advance in 1694, 
which today would probably be the equivalent of a couple of billion dollars, you better earn your pay to be paid when the act which the company demanded was passed. Money was also paid to Colonel Fitzpatrick, who had interest with Lady Derby, who had interest with the Queen. There you go. The Jews always have interest with the highest-ranking politicians of any country. We poor Anglo slobs and plebes do not have this kind of interest. The only result of these proceedings was that the Duke of Leeds was impeached for accepting a bribe of 5,000 guineas to obtain a new charter and regulations for the East India Company. The proceedings were then dropped. It will hardly be contended that the corrupt state of the Parliament thus disclosed or the methods and means employed by the East India Company were new. For it is related of them so early as the year 1657 that they had already carried their, quote, increase of presence to governors, etc., to an odious excess, unquote. The case of Skinner in 1660 is another evidence to the same effect. Here the espousal by the commons of the East India Company's interest is plainly opposed to decency and justice, was the cause of a rupture between the two houses of Parliament, which lasted for several years and almost put a stop to public business. That is exactly how corrupt our Congress is, folks. Exactly how corrupt our House of Representatives is. That the Parliament, especially the Commons, was corrupt in the reign of Charles II is notorious. The fact is attested by numerous contemporary witnesses. It is corroborated by the proceedings of Parliament itself and by the remarks and criticisms of the few virtuous and patriotic Englishmen who had the courage to lift their voices against the prevailing rottenness. The enormous powers and privileges granted by Charles II to the East India Company against the protests and representations of persons well qualified to point out their mischievous and dangerous influences were evidently not granted for nothing and even were even, even worse Sir Thomas Cook's evidence wanting it may fairly be concluded that the exposure of the company's methods which took place in 1694 proved the means that they were employed by them to procure the Act of 1666-67, which really formed the basis of their prosperity. So it's it's like the Federal Reserve Act, which took several years to formulate and finally be passed by our equivalent of Charles II, Woodrow Wilson. It constituted the most profitable of the various concessions granted to them by the crown or the avid parasites who advised and swayed it. Now, this is a Jew, Alexander Del Mar, calling his own countrymen, his own tribesmen, parasites. I love it. I absolutely love it. So here, I think you could say that Alexander Del Mar was actually an honest Jew telling the truth about his tribesmen. The reign of Charles II was not only corrupt, it was corrupt to a degree that affected all classes in proportion as they wielded power or influence. In 1661, the king granted a new charter to the East India Company, 
without consent of Parliament and contrary to law, with leave to export 50,000 pounds per annum of foreign silver, a privilege that subsequent events render it difficult to believe, was granted without pecuniary consideration. In other words, you can import or export 50,000 pounds a year, and we, the government, take no cut. Now that's tax-free imports and exports, folks. Tax-free. In the same year, he shamefully delivered up to France the country of Nova Scotia. But they got it back, back thanks to Canada. In 1662, he told he sold to France for 5 million lire, then more than twice as heavy as modern francs, say 400,000 pounds, quote, the, two, the town and port of Dunkirk, with all its fortifications, sluices, dams, etc., and likewise the fort of Mardike, with a wooden fort and the other great and small forts between Dunkirk and Burke Street, Winox, together with all the arms, artillery, ammunition, etc., unquote, such a deal. In the same year, he sold the right of flooding Ireland with base coins to a company of London goldsmiths, who probably turned their privilege to better account by floating their issues in the Oriental trade, okay, and probably issuing uh, non-pure silver coins to the Irish. In 1664, the Duke of York, and probably also the king, was pecuniarily interested in the African Company, whose profits were chiefly derived from the slaves captured in British Guinea and carried to British America. Ah, okay, the Jews again. More proof that the Jews are the people who brought the black slaves to America. In 1665, the king granted a patent to, quote, an ill-judged canary company, unquote, conceding them the monopoly of trading to the Canary Islands for gold, slaves, and other commodities. The canary in the gold mine, quote, the third article of the House of Commons impeachment of the Lord Chancellor Clarendon directly charges him with having received great sums of money for, for procuring this and other illegal patents, unquote. Now, this is extensively documented. I highly encourage everybody to get a copy of this book. It's free at archive.org. Barbara Villiers, colon, The History of Monetary Crimes by Alexander Del Mar. I mean, you get more information about Jewish banking activities in England from this book than probably from dozens or hundreds of other books. This is a great service that Alexander Delmar has given to us. Let's continue. The third article of the House of Commons impeachment of the Lord Chancellor Clarendon directly charges him with having received great sum of money for procuring this and other illegal patents. In the same year, the king repudiated the bills of public faith. Greenback. Oh, greenbacks? Really? Oh, you mean Lincoln just copied that idea from the British? Very interesting. 
bills of public faith, greenbacks issued by the Commonwealth, and he granted to Prince Rupert the monies recovered. Come on. Flip right, thank you. Recovered. My screen is jumping around. From those who had purchased crown lands with such bills of credit. So apparently this is fiat money, just like Lincoln issued during the Civil War. But in this case, it was done against the Jews, not by the Jews. In 1666, the same year that he signed the Coinage Act, and as contended for the sake of a pension to Barbara Villiers, boy, he loved that woman, to come out of the customs on liquors granted by the commons and for other considerations, he also granted to another of his mistresses, Frances Stewart, Duchess of Richmond, the sole coinage of tin farthings, the effigy of Britannia on these coins being, as Evelyn intimates, that of the frail but fair patentee. In 1667, when the Dutch Admiral de Reuter's bold exploits at Sheerness and Chatham caused a general panic in London and a run upon the bankers who, in in turn, had deposited their funds in the Exchequer, the king issued his declaration for preserving inviolably the course of payments in, in spite of his solemn declaration, he stopped payments from and closed the exchequer in 1672. So much for trusting the government. He then dishonestly appropriated all the funds entrusted to the public keeping, (laughs) right? No doubt in payment of gambling debts incurred by Barbara Villiers. So hold on, I had to scroll down too far. In 1668, he sold the town port and island of Bombay with the rest of the Isle of North South Set, together with certain sovereign rights to the East India Company. And throughout his entire reign, from the restoration to the period of his death in 1684-85, he was the recipient of an ignominious pension from Louis XIV of France. Boy, The uh, whoredom is international, is it not? We're talking about the great whore of revelation, ladies and gentlemen, the international banking system of fractional reserve banking begun in Babylon, the third beast of revelation, and now we're in the final stages of Mystery Babylon, the last beast of the book of Revelation, which will be destroyed as so many prophecies of the Bible predict the destruction of Edomite finance and Edomite economy. Boy, it's so close. I can taste it. The Jews are on the run all over the world, literally and figuratively and economically, and even in the mainstream press, their crimes are becoming so public that the mass media cannot hide these crimes any longer. This is good news for us. And it's thanks to, absolutely thanks to, alternative media for exposing the Jews. And the October 7th fiasco started by Netanyahu 
Nobody in the world is buying the lie that Hamas started this war and Hamas did this and did that atrocity. No, it was all done by Jews and Jews only because Hamas was created by these same Jews. Let's continue. In 1668, he sold... Okay, I read that already. And (laughs) he was the recipient of an ignominious pension from Louis XIV of France. So, So, in other words, Charles II was so corrupt, he bankrupted himself. Such are the circumstances under which this mischievous measure of free coinage was generated. So, oh, free trade. Free trade, folks. Isn't that what we got today? Such was its character and such its offspring. A bribe to the crown, a premium on piracy, a stimulus to the vile trade in mining slaves, and the reward of intrigue and corruption which were destined to breed and turn every form of injustice, rottenness, and oppression. It deprived the state of its ancient control over money and has practically conferred the supernal prerogative upon an aristocracy of wealth more detestable than the tyranny from which our American forefathers rebelled. Now, I have to point out, however, that Alexander Del Mar does not point out that these banksters were, in fact, Jews. This may have been common knowledge at the time. But he does not uh, point this out in the book, mainly by inference. I haven't been paying attention to, to whether he actually names the Jew in this document. Nevertheless, the corruption exposed about the East India Company, which we know has always been run by Jews, is exemplary. I mean... You cannot expect this kind of courage and honesty from a graduate of Columbia School of Broadcasting or Journalism. There is no, this type of journalism doesn't exist anymore, folks. This is really in-depth. And it's all footnoted here. You can look up all the acts and all the, the acts of intrigue, so to speak. Okay, such are the circumstances. It has extorted from the people hundreds of millions for the expenses of mint establishments in whose support they have no interest, that is the public, or else to make good the wear and tear of coins which are sold like hogs by the pound weight and sent abroad to have their effigies of liberty (laughs) effaced and made to do service for the avowed enemies of liberty, just like our paper money has the visages of our heroes, Andrew Jackson, George Washington. I know you Southerners don't like Abraham Lincoln, etc., etc. Oh, wait a minute. Alexander Hamilton? Isn't his face on one of those bills, too? Oh, and Benjamin Franklin. Okay. I would say every single one of them except Alexander Hamilton was an enemy of the banksters. But yet, with these visages, they pretend to honor them. Don't you know? Okay. It's like uh, a White Sox fan parading outside of Wrigley Field, waving a Cubs flag, but he's really, it's just he's just mocking the Cubs. 
Through the command of metal, metallic money, which this measure placed in the hands of the goldsmith or banking class, it has enabled them to grasp the control of all money, of all substitutes, which were created by them, namely paper money, all substitute for money and that of commerce whose indispensable instrument is money. The remainder of the people are practically restricted to manual labor, the retail trades, or other inferior or comparatively profitless employments. And the liberals of America want to blame the white patriarchy. What reason had the United States to copy this corrupt legislation in 1792? Ooh. Ooh. That's going to be the subject of our Voice of Christian Israel show on Sunday, folks. Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. He was the one who pushed for this, folks. Or to follow this mischievous policy. What business had we to copy England in the Coinage Act of 1666, whose main purpose and object was to evade and defeat the solemn decision of the Privy Council in the Mint Money Case, or Mixed Money Case, M-I-X-T Money Case. Don't know what that is. What had we to do with the profits of exchanging silver coins for Indian gold in the 17th century, that is, the people? Was this in the people's interest? or with the coining mill and screw press of Antoine Brucher, or with the West Indian piracies of Morgan and his fellow buccaneers, who was probably working for the Jews, or with the slave trade of Guinea, which was certainly a Jewish enterprise. What interest had we in the iniquitous iniquities of the East India Company, its murderers and robberies in the East, or its shameful purchase of a polluted king, a polluted cabinet, and a polluted parliament? in the West. What had we to do with the prostitution of Barbara Villiers, her greed, her avidity, her hold upon the British Mint, the monetary legislation that was framed to rid the king of her presence and install another infamous woman in her infamous place? I say, what had we Americans to do with this burden of crimes and pollution which lay at the door of the Stuart family and belonged to a state of society from which we had revolted with abhorrence. Well, if not tomorrow, we'll definitely get to the story of Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and how, why, how and why George Washington sided with Hamilton against Jefferson in creating the first National Bank of the United States. Because that was clearly the Jew parasite getting its foot in our door. That's clearly what happened at that time. Okay, and the answer is nothing whatever. America got nothing for it. Yet we ignorantly adopted the whole of it on the day when Hamilton's Mint Bill was enacted by Congress. We copied it all. We made it our own. And in the course of the century which has passed since we adopted it, we have succeeded in building up a class of people who are interested or who believe themselves to be interested in supporting it. This class consists of merchants in the foreign trade and the bankers and others with whom they deal. Our foreign commerce does not consist, as, as does that of England, 
in the profitable functions of buying, selling, carrying out for the rest of the world, but chiefly in buying for our own consumption classes of merchandise which could probably be better produced at home and in selling our grain and cotton and tobacco crops at half price. England has 320 millions of vassals laboring for her in India and Burma, and she has 40 millions elsewhere. All of this at the behest of the East India Company, don't you know? Ladies and gentlemen, Christian Israel, this is all Jew criminality. She has many millions of Negroes in Africa who are virtually slaves. She has 15 million tons of merchant shipping, a navy equal to that of any three other powers, and coaling imports every sea and clime. Oh, sorry, yeah, coaling. Coaling ports. Uh, I imagine the coal is for uh, running uh, any uh, ship's engines. I'm not sure. Unless we propose to reduce our own working class to the wages and condition of Indian riot, the African slave, or the British pauper, we cannot compete with an ind- compete with an industry that is built upon such a stupendous mass of iniquity, or which has attained such gigantic dimensions. And if both economical considerations and merciful feelings warn us to avoid a field in which there is neither honor nor profit for us, we should be prepared to renounce the British monetary system, which is fitted alone for that field. Its basis is robbery of the weak and barter with the strong. Its means are monetary systems entirely subjected to the bankers and foreign merchants of London. Its aim is is the elevation of the sordid and cynical class of the to the ownership and government of the earth. So the idea that the Jews want to control the planet did not start with Hitler. <laughs> okay. Alexander Del Mar is a conspiracy theorist. Imagine that. We Americans want no more of it. We demand that the government shall resume the the control of money, which is in our Constitution, folks. We demand that silver shall be coined on precisely the same terms as gold, whatever those may be, and that both metals shall be subject to governmental seniorage. That is, the government shall make some kind of profit, whether by spending it into circulation or taxing this and that. But uh, even that was deprived of the government stolen by the Jew banksters of the day. We demand that the ratio of value in the coins of these metals shall be as it was before and is yet 16 for one of weight. We want no international treaties nor entanglements on the subject of money. In short, we demand that the monetary crimes of 1666, 1868, 1870, and 1873 shall be undone and the authors of the latter proclaimed and exposed to the execrations of an outraged people. Well, obviously, the, these latter dates, 1868, 1870, 1873, are bills that were passed here in America. So, I don't see how Alexander Del Mar cannot know 
that the Rothschilds were, who were involved in these latter three bills weren't Jews. So he may have been one of those independent Jews who outside the Jewish religion exposes what Jews do. Okay, and uh, praise Yahweh for the fact that he did this. Okay, so that's the end of chapter... What chapter is it? The next chapter is the crime of 1742. Uh, So now he's uh, uh, taking us into the colonies and how the Jew banksters began to rob the American people just as they had been robbing the British people. And as the book of Daniel says, the, the devil and the banksters will wear out the saints, will wear us out. It's amazing how many wars the East India Company fomented against various nations with the assistance of the British military and also to some extent the assistance of American not necessarily military, but American ships of secret societies such as Skull and Bones, which assisted these British ships in these crimes. Not to mention the crimes committed against the South African Boer people. So this criminality, this rape, murder, and subjugation not just of foreign races, but of the white race by these Jew banksters, is still going on today. It's called the Federal Reserve Act. It's called Central Bank Digital Currency. It's called the Federal Reserve Note. It's called Fiat Money. It's called inflation, and it is the bank of issue of American currency at interest made payable by the American public to these Jew banksters. I hope with this final episode on this topic, the level of criminality, mafioso criminality, and we're just talking about Well, we're talking about the monetary crime and the crime of military actions against innocent nations of India, of China, and all points in between, and also of South Africa, the Boer people of South Africa, and of course, later on, the American people. And this criminality is still taking place. The same criminals, the same Jew bigots, created the United Nations, the European Union, NATO, etc. This powerful agency of Lucifer, the devil, carried on by his wolves in Jewish clothing, while they pretend to be the citizens of every nation they infiltrate, is still going on today. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition for this book by Alexander Del Mar, 
which really lays it on the line how evil the international banking establishment is. And I bet your bottom dollar that this book will never be made uh, you know, mandatory reading in any college, university, high school, or even grade school because it's too knowledgeable. It's too truthful. It's too damning of the Jewish bankster class. That's why this will never see the light of day, except right here on Eurofolk Radio and the people who listen to us and follow through. This is a subject of immense support, importance, even though, obviously, the vast majority of the public have no interest whatsoever in economics. They're content to be victims of the crime of usury and inflation. Don't tell me anything about it. I don't want to know. Is the typical response, especially of the churches, the so-called Christian churches. Father Yahweh, I ask that this ignorance of our people regarding international finances and manipulation of money the money changers that our Savior, Yahshua Messiah, whipped out of the temple with his own whip is an episode from which the Judeo-Christian world has learned nothing. It's about time they learn what this is all about. We thank you in the name of your son, Yahshua Messiah. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody, and have a Jew-free day. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.